Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. You can follow along with me in your Bible, in your smartphone. Uh, it's also provided for you free of charge in your bulletin. If you want to follow along there, you can do that as well. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad that you're here because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, uh, DJ's not here, so this one was for DJ, but you could be wringing your hands because Man U has to play Leeds and uh, Crystal Palace and their fixtures at the first of next year, but most of y'all don't care. But DJ usually sits there, would, or he sits right there, would. Uh, but you could be mountain biking over at IAMS, or you could be down at the Tennessee Theater for the summer movie Shrek, uh, but you're not doing any of those things. Uh, you're here with us this morning, and we're really glad you're here. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than to worship Jesus to consider his claims upon your life, to think about the kindness of his word and the power of his kingdom. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. It's great to have you. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who love to gather together in community. We love to watch Shrek. We love to watch uh, football, which is also called soccer. Uh, but we also uh, really love to gather together and read the Bible and pray so that we can remind one another of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that uh, this morning, uh, we've entered into this short little five-week series on God's Word, right? That God speaks. And what we've been trying to think about is this. What we've been looking to consider is this, that God speaks, right? That God speaks good news, that God speaks good news about His Son, that God speaks good news about his son with joyful testimony and that God speaks good news about his son with joyful testimony and deep longing. And so this morning, what I want us to reflect upon is this idea that God speaks good news, right? That God speaks good news about his son. So with that in mind, let's look together. First Peter uh, chapter one, verses eight through uh, 12. Though you have not seen him, uh, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for this, your word, that you are kind uh, to speak to not remain hidden nor silent, uh, but to draw near to us uh, in your word and by your spirit and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And it truly is our prayer this morning that as we attend unto your word, you would attend unto us with your good news, that we might be a people who rejoice and celebrate in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if any of you have watched the Ricky Gervais comedy special called Humanity, but if you have, it's this fascinating discussion about humanity and life and the Bible, and he begins the special by talking about how humanity is not the deadliest animal on the planet, but King Kong is. And then he uses this idea of King Kong to talk about how we evolved from apes, and then he segues from that to talk about the Bible, and he says this, You know, I used to believe that we evolved from apes, but I found this new theory in a dusty old book in the library. It's called the Bible. And it says we didn't evolve, but God made us. And then he pauses, right, for everyone to laugh. Um, And what I want us to think about this morning isn't so much evolution or not evolution, but this idea that the Bible is just a dusty old book to be stored away in libraries, And and this idea is a not-so-subtle assertion that the Bible is really just out of touch and irrelevant. And I think, really, that's how many of us think about the Bible. It's just a dusty old theory for understanding God and the world, and therefore the Bible has little value for any of us today. And that's a pretty common way for people to think about the Bible, right? The Bible's just a strange, old, dusty book. And so why should we bother with it? Well, the reason that Christians bother with the Bible is because we actually believe that it is good news from God. We actually bother with the Bible because we believe that it is God's good news for the entire world. And to understand this world apart from God's word is to misunderstand the world. It's, it's to misunderstand ourselves. It's to misunderstand one another. And ultimately, it's to misunderstand God. And so here's what I want us to think about this morning, that, that God's word is good news, right? God's word is good news. Would you say that with me? God's word is good news. Now, I recognize that someone might think that the Bible is really just this outdated story and that things like demons and angels and temples and sacrifices and prophets and priests and heaven and hell and miracles and forgiveness might seem like they're all a part of this pre-modern age. But by what criteria 
Let me ask, what criteria would we use to determine what is the true and good story for the world? And who is it then that will get to decide? Will it, as our friend Kip from Napoleon Dynamite say, always and forever uh, be Western secular society? Or will one day Western secular society be replaced by Scandinavian metamodernism? Or by urbanizing sub-Saharan Africa? Or by the Middle East? Uh, Why not go back to Southern colonialism? Why isn't it Western individualism? Why not Pan-Asian theories? And I think the question for all of us, especially in this secular age, is are, are we always and forever just going to allow our skeptical Religion 101 professor to have the final word about how we understand the Bible and how we understand this world? And here's my point. The Bible is intended, God's word is intended to confront every and all cultural narratives. And we must ask ourselves, is it really appropriate for us to evaluate God's word as dusty just because it doesn't match our cultural norms and preferences? And we've got to come to grips with this idea that that what is going to happen when our modern cultural norms just become dusty? When our cultural preferences become dusty, what will we then use to evaluate? I mean, think about it this way. At one time on this planet, everyone was doing the Harlem Shake, right? And now the Harlem Shake is collecting dust somewhere on the internet with your jelly bracelets. And, uh, and what we believe, right, as Christians, is that the word of God is relevant Because it is good news for all times and for all peoples and for all places. And that God's word is the story by which all other stories are meant to be judged. And maybe, right, if God is real, and maybe if God is personal, then maybe God would have a few things to say to us about how we understand his world and about what is truly good and right and beautiful for his world. Now, I also believe that the dustiness of God's word or the ancient origins of the Bible are actually some of the most compelling reasons for us to embrace it. Uh, Let's be honest. uh, The Bible has stood the test of time. There is not another book that has sold as many copies there, there is not another book that has been translated as often or has been as well preserved throughout time as the Bible. We have over 5,000 complete manuscripts of the Bible that date from uh, about 350 A.D., we, we have hundreds of New Testament fragments that date from the first century alone. And not only that, we have historians and theologians from the very first century quoting the Bible over and over again. And here's my point. The Bible is well-preserved, the Bible is well-documented, and the Bible is well-quoted from a very early date within close proximity to the events about which it is talking 
there is no other document on the planet, there's no other book on the planet that even comes close to the data and to the historical preservation of the Bible. Now, of course, this does not prove that the Bible is true. But it does prove that Christians, from a very early date, from a very early date, preserved and passed on God's word because we believed it to be true. And because we believed it to be good and right. We preserved it and passed it on because we believed it was good news. And here's the point. God's word is good news. Right? God's word is good news. Would you say that with me? God's word is good news. Now, some people might think that the Bible is just this collection of different unrelated and conflicting stories. Here's my question. Have you actually read it? Like, we all have opinions about the Bible that we haven't read. Have you actually read the text? Because if you have, one of the things that you will notice is that the Bible is a beautifully crafted, coherent story that spans thousands of years. And it is telling the same story over and over again through different authors and by different genres. And rather than seeing this as a problem, it actually ought to comfort us. Because what this tells us is that God has a story to tell. And he has been telling that story from the very beginning. He told the story in Genesis. He's telling the story in Leviticus. He tells the story in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and in Jeremiah and Isaiah and even in Zechariah. And all of it was written and preserved for us. For us. Now, notice what it says in verse 12. It was revealed to them, meaning the prophets of the Old Testament, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Right? Not themselves, but you. This is important because it's easy for us to just assume that the Old Testament is a bunch of strange, old, dusty stories recorded by men to tell a particular community about how to make life work for them at a particular moment. Or it's very easy for us just to think that the Old Testament prophets were really just good cultural critics who were able to predict what was about to happen in the world. But the prophets, this text is telling us, were not just writing to their own particular people about their own particular sins and their own particular time and their own particular struggles. They were also, verse 12, preaching the good news to us. And this is why, verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now here's the point. The prophets were searching and inquiring because they wanted to understand the grace and the glory that was to come through Jesus. They wanted to understand the things that they were saying. They wanted to understand the promises that were, were being spoken. They wanted to understand these things. And so they were searching and they were inquiring to see this grace and to see this glory. And I think it's amazing because even the prophets longed to see the salvation of which they had spoken. 
Now, of course, they'd caught glimpses of it, right? They had glimpses of it in the temple. They had glimpses of it in the sacrificial system. They had glimpses of it in the kingdom and in the priest. They proclaimed the coming day of the Lord. They had proclaimed the coming Messiah. They, they had seen it in the crushing of the serpent there in Genesis. They'd heard about the suffering servant who was to come in the book of Isaiah. But they searched and they inquired, why? Because they longed to see the salvation of God come in fullness. Not just to hear about it, but they long for it to come in fullness. And what I want you to see is that we're a lot like the prophets. Our experience is a lot like that of the prophets. They believed in God. They loved God. They loved his word, but they had not seen him. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Right? Let's just tell us they believe God. They loved him just like we believe God. Right? Just like we love him. Uh, but like them, we long to see him. And like them, we long to experience the fullness of the salvation which is to come. And it's not just us longing to see this and understand this. Notice what it says in verse 12. Even the angels long to look into these things. The angels long to see the fullness of God's story made complete. And what are these things that they long to see? Verse 12, the good news that the prophets have preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What I want you to see here is that the prophets and the angels just like us, long to understand the good news that the Holy Spirit was teaching through them. They long to understand this good news of God. That's what God's word is about. God is telling us good news about his salvation. Right? God's word is good news. God's word is good news. Would you say that with me? God's word is good news. What about you? Do you long to understand these things? Do, do you long to understand this good news? Do you, do you search it? Do you inquire of it? Do you really want to understand it? Or are you like, meh, let's just move on to the next thing. Let's just move on with life. What Peter is saying is that this good news ought to capture our imagination this, this good news ought to be the thing above all things that we want to understand. This good news ought to be the thing that grips your heart and grips your mind and grips your imagination and shapes your life. But sadly, I think even though many of us in this room, we value this story, uh, I think we still misunderstand it. And what we do with this good news is we turn the good news in on ourselves. And we then make the Bible about us. And the way we tend to read the Bible is like a Where's Waldo book where you're always looking for Waldo. But instead of looking for Waldo, you're reading the book looking for yourself. And you want to find you on every page. Because what you want is you want to become the subject of the story. But as Fleming Rutledge says over and over again, and other theologians say over and over again, we are not the subject. God is the subject. And what that means is that Christianity is about God 
before it is ever about you. Christianity is about God before it's ever about you. It is fundamentally God's story of salvation. And therefore, what the Bible, what God's word is trying to do is to lift Jesus up before our eyes so that we might look away from ourselves and begin to see him. And this is what Peter is trying to get at in verse 10 when he says, concerning this salvation. Well, what is this salvation? Verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, here's the point. God's word is good news. And it is good news that salvation comes from God, not you. It is the good news that salvation comes from God and not you. Therefore, it is good news, verse 12. Uh, and all of us know, I would think, most of us at least, know that, that gospel literally means good news. And therefore, it is just that. It is news. It is a good report about a historical event. It is about something that has been done or will be done. It is the good news that God saves. It is not the good news that you can save yourself if you're good enough or smart enough or committed enough. It is not the good news that if you work really hard and sacrifice, you can change the world. It is not good ideas. It is not good morals. It is not good deeds. It is the good news that God saves. J. Gresham Machen, who's the founder of Westminster Seminary, uh, I think said it best. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, Will you not tell me those facts? See what he's saying? What is God's word to us? It is the good news that he has done something. That he is the one who saves us. And so this is why the prophets, verse 12, announced it. They are proclaiming, they are announcing that something has happened in history. Or that something was going to happen in history. That God is the one who would save his people. But how? That was their question. How was God going to do this? That's what they wanted to know. That's why they were searching. That's why they were inquiring. Because they wanted to see the grace and the glory of how God would do this. And Peter tells us, verse 11, that the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is the good news. That salvation comes through the sufferings of Jesus. And we have to have God tell us that. Because none of us would expect it. And none of us would believe it. Because most of us, what we truly deep down believe is that gods are not supposed to suffer. Gods make people suffer. That's what we believe. Gods would not suffer. They want to make us suffer. But that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who suffers in our place in order that we might be saved. 
Right? That's the point of the cross. He bore the wrath of God. He died so that we don't have to. You might remember in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And he gave answers, they gave answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And, and Jesus then goes, okay, that's great. But who do you say that I am? And then you remember that Peter, the writer of this letter, boldly gets up and he says, you're the Christ. And by saying this, what Peter was saying, he was confessing that you're the Savior. You're the one through whom God will save his people. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to defeat all of your and our enemies. You're the one who's going to rule and reign over all things. You're the one who will bring peace to this world. And then after receiving the confession, uh, the passage tells us that Jesus immediately began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And what he was doing was saying this, you're right, I am the Messiah, but you think I will come through power and destruction and judgment. But I will come and bear your judgment. I will come and I will suffer I will be the one who dies so that you do not. Peter then, uh, Jesus, Peter then pulls Jesus aside, you remember, and starts to rebuke him. Could you imagine telling Jesus he's wrong? We kind of do it all the time. He pulls him aside, begins to rebuke Jesus. And the reason that he rebuked Jesus was because in his mind, salvation can only come through power. And salvation can only come by strength. But a suffering Messiah makes no sense. It made no sense to him. And if we're honest, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. How is it that salvation can come through suffering? How is it that winning can come by losing? Right? And Jesus looks at Peter, and this is amazing. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying. Because what he's saying is this. He's saying that the things of Satan, <laughs> things of the evil one, the things of man, are looking at salvation through means of power. Thinking that power and strength are the things that will save you. Being right in your own eyes are the things that will save you. And here's the good news of the gospel. It's not about you. It's not about you being strong enough or good enough or right enough. It is about him who is strong enough and right enough and good enough. And it is about his suffering on your behalf. What most of us try to do is take this Christian thing and bend it in on ourselves and make ourselves the subject. But the good news of salvation, the good news of God, is not you, but him. God has done it all. And Jesus says, Peter, look, I want you to think about the good news of God. I want you to think about all that the prophets have told you about. 
I want you to think about how you've read throughout the prophets that, that there is one who would come and bear your sins. I want you to think about how there, you've read that there's one who would come and suffer in your place. He says, that's who I am. I'm the one who came not to live but to die. I'm the one who came not to take power but to share it. I, I'm the one who came uh, not, to, uh, not to rule but to serve. And that's really the good news of how uh, evil will be defeated. It's the good news of how we will be saved. That God is the one who will bear the evil of this world. That God is the one who will bear all the suffering that has been inflicted upon us. And God is the one who will bear the penalty for all the suffering that we've inflicted upon other people. And then he says he will rise. And when I rise, you will then see my glory. But first, I must die. Then I will rise. That is the good news of God. And this is the salvation that all of us are longing to look into. And this is why Christians love the Bible. This is why we read it over and over and over again. This is why we preach it week after week. This is why we sing it. This is why we can't get enough of it. Because it's this book, it's this story that tells us the good news that God saves us. God's word is good news. Right? God's word is good news. Would you say that with me? God's word is good news. That's the point of this book. That's the point of God's word. And that is the point of the word made visible here at this table. The table is good news. And it is good news because it doesn't just tell us, but it shows us and invites us to taste and to see, to ingest uh, the good news that it is Jesus who paid it all. That it is Jesus who gave himself. That it is Jesus who suffered and died. That it is Jesus who endured the wrath of God in our place. So that we might receive all the blessings of our Father. And so when we come to this table this morning, I want you to notice that this table uh, is not set with all of our good works. And this table is not set with commandments and laws. It's not set with good advice. It is not set with good morals. It is not set with new ideas about how to get better and do better and to do more. This table is set with the body and blood of Jesus. And he invites us to come and to feast upon him. And he invites us to get up from our seats and we get up with nothing in our hands. Nothing. So that we can receive all of him. And this really is the good news. That Christ has died. That Christ is risen. And that Christ will come again. That's the point of the table. It's the point of his word. It's the story he's telling. And it is good news. Right? God's word is good news. God's word is good news. Would you say that one last time with me? God's, God's word, word is, is good, good news. news.